Welcome to the St. Emelins podcast. I'm Ian Beardsall, and I'm absolutely delighted that today on the podcast we have a special guest. Sam Fitzsimmons is one of our consultant congenital heart disease experts from Southampton who recently gave a talk to our emergency department team. It was such good stuff, absolute gold, that she's very kindly agreed to come on the podcast to go through some of those facts with us. Sam, thank you so much for coming. I think this is a group of patients that really cause us anxiety in the emergency department. So hopefully we can use the next few minutes to mean that we're a bit calmer and we do the best for our patients. Tell us a bit about adult congenital heart disease in the UK these days, because it seems to me that we're seeing many more patients now. Absolutely, and you're spot on. Firstly, thank you for inviting me to do this. It's um, such a worthwhile cause. Adult congenital heart disease in the UK and around the world, we're seeing an increase in numbers. And this really comes down to the progression in paediatric congenital surgery. So to give you an example, uh, those born with congenital heart disease in the 1950s, 90% of those children would never see adulthood. Now we're looking at about 85% of those since the 1980s making into adulthood. And the numbers that we have show that we have more adult congenital patients than we do paediatric. So we're looking in Europe around 2.3 million versus 1.9 for the paediatric population. And these patients are living... I guess, relatively normal lives. So wherever you work, they're able to travel, they're able to function absolutely normally. So as lockdown eases and we open up, they're going to be traveling to a DGH near you. Uh, they're not just going to be at the teaching hospitals where we've got the, the specialists available. So this is something everybody needs to know, I guess. And that's why I think this is so important. These patients do turn up at the front door for everyone. As I say, it's not just the growing population. They're a young population who like to do the same as other young adults. They travel, they travel around the UK frequently but this is an expert group of patients they know their case inside out they tend to know what works for them and what doesn't and this can bring challenges for the sort of non-specialist in the ED they're complex patients with complex medical needs sometimes these patients don't respond to our normal medical interventions they might have abnormal anatomy and that brings with it different physiological changes so if we just think about a general approach, because I can picture the scene, it's late on a Saturday night and all of a sudden a patient turns up at triage or in an ambulance and all you know is that they've had some sort of heart disease as a child and they've had some sort of operation and they've ended up in recess, they're blue, they're looking really poorly and they say to you, I don't feel great. What can we do as emergency physicians before we go off and look at their notes and try and do easy? Is there a general approach we can have to this whole... I, understanding, of course, that we're talking about a large number of different conditions within this, but can we have a, a single approach generally to make sure we're doing the right things at the beginning? And this is where I think you mustn't forget. I think, or certainly in my mind, ED physicians are the best at the ABC bedside assessment, picking out who is acutely unwell. And I would say for this patient group, do not deviate from what you normally do when a patient arrives in your ED, the bedside test. Start with your ABCs. Our patient group might look overly complex to those unspecialists, but actually, if you start at the beginning with the airway, if the patient is alert and talking to you with a patent airway, it's exactly the same in a non-congenital patient. They should have a normal respiratory rate, no matter what their abnormality underlying. So if they've got an increase in their respiratory rate, still follow your ABC. And oxygen is not a bad thing in the congenital patient group. As we said, we've got different specific lesions, but start with the bedside assessment. If they look unwell, their respiratory rate is elevated. You can still do their saturations. And if they're hypoxic, still deliver oxygen. I would honestly say stick to your normal bedside assessment, ABC. 
just to be clear, we're not going to do harm if we give high flow oxygen to patients at the beginning prior to knowing what their lesion is and, and having a conversation with a cardiologist. That's an okay first step. And actually, that will do more benefit than to restrict oxygen in the group who actually need it. Quite right. I think where errors occur, Ian, for me, is when people deviate away from what they're used to doing and their normal process in their heads. Things get missed. A patient may have lower oxygen saturations than the normal population, but they are still able to drop those further with acute pathologies such as pneumonias or pulmonary emboli, and that will be oxygen responsive. So I think start at the beginning, assess them from the ABC, and do deliver oxygen until you've had further assessments. And thinking a little bit then about blood pressure because we're obsessed by oxygenation and blood pressure really in the recess room i'm guessing that if you have a congenital disease whatever that may be you should generally have a normal blood pressure shouldn't you so if you go into it thinking that they have a normal blood pressure i don't think you can go wrong it's when people assume that a hypotensive blood pressure is normal for that patient is where things go wrong and people may walk away from them i think also to say this is a younger population group as well and uh, just because they're young does definitely not mean that they're fit and will tolerate differences and hemodynamics. So yes, in answer to the blood pressure question, I would say treat them as having a normal blood pressure. If they've got a blood pressure that is hypotensive or that might move into more of a cardiogenic shock picture, then um, treat them as such until you have further information. Try not to deviate too much from your normal standard protocol. This is excellent stuff. This For an emergency physician, hearing things like this is absolute gold, that we don't need to be too clever. We just need to do what we do and do it well. Now, Simon Carley, has done an excellent blog post in the past back in 2019 about many of the different conditions and he's got links to lots of videos on there some of them I have to admit I've watched a little bit dry so they are there for information and we're not going to go through every single condition because there are so many but I wondered Sam if we could just go through some of those high impact ones that where the words just seem to freak us out a bit and we're not even sure what they are now until your talk I believe that the Fontan was an actual disease uh, and then it turns out that Fontan is the name of a person who had devised a repair. So can we start with those patients who we describe seemingly as they have a Fontan? Tell me a bit about those. Why do they need that operation and what's happened to bring them to us at that stage? Yeah, absolutely. And it's all about demystifying, isn't it? So Fontan is the description of a circulation. They all may have different underlying pathologies from birth, but they have all made it to the same, we call it a univentricular circulation. And what we mean by that is the patient will have two ventricles, but they will only have one functioning ventricle that is sustaining their systemic circulation. The Fontan, you're quite right, gives you a description of their uh, circulation rather than the true underlying heart disease that they were born with. They've usually got there through two or three stages. So this will be a patient that will have multiple chest scars. They'll have some around the lateral thoracotomy, so around the auxilla, and then they'll have the stenotomies. These patients will make it into adult life with one systemic ventricle and a really fragile circulation. So to describe this in simple terms, think of it as though there's no pumping ventricle on the pulmonary circulation, that all the head and neck vessels that plumb into the superior vena cava go directly into the pulmonary arteries and any venous return, whether it be hepatic or coming up from the IVC, again gets plumbed directly into the pulmonary arteries, often currently through a Gore-Tex tube, which we call a total cava pulmonary connection. But I think all you need to know is that this is a fragile circulation with no 
pumping ventricle on the pulmonary side and it relies solely on low pressure in the pulmonary bed. So anything such as a PE, an infection, pulmonary you know, uh, pneumonia or ventilation and general anaesthesia will increase the pulmonary pressures and this makes that circulation difficult to sustain and has big clinical impact. These guys do not do well with high pressures at their lung bed. Just to check I'm understanding that right, what's happening is that multiple different lesions can cause this but in essence the right ventricle isn't working as we would understand it and instead of having a right ventricle what we've got is all the returning blood going into a pulmonary vessel that has no pumping capability. So is it at low pressure? Is that right? So slightly. So I suppose in adult congenital heart disease, the trick is that we try not to call them right and left ventricles because we look at the, the way in which the ventricle looks, the morphology. The best way to describe them might be a systemic ventricle because it could be a right or left ventricle. I think that's where the trick is. So we call them a systemic ventricle because that's what it's doing. It's supplying the systemic circulation. So there is no ventricle. There is no muscular pumping chamber supplying the lungs in the pulmonary circulation is a passive flow. You're absolutely right. It's quite simply reliant on changes in pressures within the lung and it's all venous returned through a passive tube. Just to go before the Fontan procedures happened and they've been through those repairs, what sort of conditions could patients have had way back when they were born that might have caused them to come to that? One thing that totally fascinates me, they're an amazing uh, group of patients. So the most common was tricuspid atresia, which you will see at the top of the diagnosis list because this was the lesion they were born with. What this means is that the tricuspid valve didn't form. And therefore, with a tricuspid valve that doesn't form, blood can't get into the ventricle underneath it, normally the right ventricle you're thinking of. And therefore, that doesn't form and wouldn't sustain a circulation. By essence, blood goes into that through a ventricular septal defect. But what you need to know is the tricuspid valve didn't form. The right ventricle didn't become large enough to sustain a circulation. And so this patient has had to go for a univentricular circulation because they only had one good ventricle. So this is a developmental abnormality whereby the, the right ventricle just can't form in utero. So they're born without it. So they still have it, but it hasn't got big enough. So it hasn't had the blood flow into it through the tricuspid valve because the tricuspid valve hasn't developed. So you need blood into a ventricle for it to work. Otherwise, it sits there not really knowing what to do. So it's hypoplastic. It's small and it wouldn't sustain a circulation. Okay, so that's the tricuspid atresia, which seems to be the starting point of quite a few problems further down the line, like the hypopastic ventricle that you mentioned. What other things might lead you to a Fontan? So we've got uh, another condition, which is also very common, called a double inlet left ventricle. In that one, both your tricuspid and mitral valves feed into one large left ventricle, and it's morphologically a left ventricle. So we look at it and its features suggest it's a left ventricle. And that's all about the muscular appearance and the insertion of the mitral valve that goes into the myocardium. You will have a small right ventricle that just sits off the side of that, again, supplied by usually a, a small ventricular septal defect but in essence again one small ventricle and one big functioning ventricle so if you were to try and correct this lesion you would have a very tiny insignificant ventricle that would never sustain a circulation so thereby we use all of the myocardium to sustain the systemic circulation and give them a passive flow with no pumping ventricle to the lungs. Okay, I, th I think I'm getting there now. So, I mean, the bottom line is we need a systemic ventricle, whether yep. that's a left or a right. That's the one that we're going to concentrate on. And the Fontan is a means of just replacing that 
pulmonary side with whatever way we can and it's a passive circulation but that makes it incredibly vulnerable to things on that pulmonary side uh, and I'm sure we're going to c- come to talk to uh, some of the complications that can happen. Are there any other conditions that would lead to this that we need to think about? Obviously really this is more for academic interest because what we're talking about is the patient comes in with the Fontan, the rest of it, I suppose, gets the patient to believe that we know what we're talking about. If we can say, oh, did you have tricuspid atresia? They might believe we've got it. It's a bit like when we do dental stuff. Uh, I truly believe that if you know how to name the teeth, people believe you're a dentist. So this is really good information, but won't be necessary on the day. Are there other things that we need to think about with the Fontan patients? Yeah, absolutely. As you say, I think there's a few more lesions there. But in essence, you're quite right. It's all about having one big pumping chamber for the systemic ventricle. So now that we know about the Fontan and how it works, let's think a little bit about specific problems with that repair. We will talk a bit about other global presentations later, but what with a Fontan, when we've identified the patient, we've made sure they've got good SATs, they've got an okay blood pressure, We've worked out from their scars, maybe from their history, that this is the repair that's happened. What are the special things that happen in Fontan patients that may be at the forefront of why they're in our rhesus room? I think the most common emergency and one of the only emergencies in adult congenital heart disease is arrhythmias in the univitricular Fontan circulation. These patients rely heavily on having atrioventricular synchrony. So they need to have good atrial contraction to allow filling of their systemic ventricle. We all remember Starling's law. We need good filling of that ventricle to generate a good stroke volume. Also, in this patient group, having an atrial arrhythmia will cause the systemic ventricle to stiffen and it gets restrictive. By doing so, it increases the pressure in the atria above that. And of course, we know that plumbs straight back into the pulmonary circulation through the pulmonary veins. And as I've already said, anything that puts the pulmonary pressures up causes difficulty in a forward flow through the circulation. So you get clinical deterioration and demise hemodynamically in this group very quickly with atrial arrhythmias. Again, just back to physiology, we've got this single systemic ventricle that has to be filled to the best starling ability we can, if you like. And that's so dependent on the atria. So to be honest, atrial fibrillation for us in the emergency department is one of those conditions where we kind of, you know, raise our eyebrows and sigh a bit. But in these patients, an atrial arrhythmia could be fatal. And within a very short period of time, it happens very quickly. All of these patients will have a threshold to deteriorate extremely quickly. And to the point that most of our patients that have been through ED with recurrent arrhythmias would have some understanding of this. And I would guarantee that a majority, certainly of my patients, will come in fasted, knowing that the only way to get a Fontan out of their arrhythmia is with electrical DC cardioversion. Now, that in itself shows that the patients have been educated about the risks of arrhythmias, which is why we're here today to educate many about the risks of arrhythmias. But the DC cardioversion comes with risks, of course, and this should be done in expert hands. And by that, I mean cardiothoracic anaesthetists, people that are used to understanding the fragile nature of this condition, both the univentricular function, as well as not increasing the pulmonary pressures so high that you can't get any blood through that passive circulation. So arrhythmias are life-threatening in a univentricular circulation. They deteriorate quickly and they need to be treated with electrical cardioversion in expert hands by a cardiothoracic anaesthetist. We do ours in cardiothoracic theatre anaesthetic room or in our cath labs. 
it be centre dependent, but it has to be in an expert area where you have the right people around if things go wrong. You're basically saying that I can't give them a bit of propofol and zap them in recess? No, thank you. I think you might find that if you suddenly, one of two things, if you suddenly drop their systemic blood pressure, then you might not allow myocardial blood flow as well if they become profoundly hypotensive and they're already struggling with myocardial blood flow because they're not getting any outputs, poor cardiac output because they're not getting any thinning of their systemic ventricle. But if you increase their pulmonary pressures, if you suppress their respiratory drive, then they're not going to have any forward flow through their lung bed at all and you will not have any sustainable circulation. Okay, that sounds like a reason not to do it. I think the one thing, Sam, I can hear people saying now is, but I don't have cardiothoracic anaesthetists in my centre. I'm in a DGH. We see these patients very infrequently. I've got now that a patient coming in with a known Fontan circulation or univentricular circulation in an atrial arrhythmia, however fast that may be, or even not fast that may be, is at immediate risk what can they do to make things better? Is it only DC cardioversion? Are we staying massively away from any medical treatment? Because again, this may be this, oh, atrial arrhythmia, AF, whatever. Why don't we try some amiodarone or something else like that? Is that a no-no? In my view, it's a no-no. Yeah. I think for me, this is one of the emergencies where I fully appreciate people are in a DGH. Patient comes through the door, ABC assessment. Remember your your normal ABC assessment with them. You can get letters and find out their normal saturations or their normal blood pressure, but keep them nailed by mouth. Get a large bore cannula into them. And then I think you should be, if you've got your ECGs, you can compare them to their old ECGs because they're often tough to pick out if it's an atrial arrhythmia, but rely on the patient. They're expert patients if they tell you they're having palpitations and they feel unwell with it until proven otherwise they're in an atrial arrhythmia. I would pick up the phone. In the UK, we have specialist adult congenital centres that offer a 24-7 on call that you can pick up the phone and speak to them. They'll know their patients well. If you don't have a cardiothoracic anaesthetist, certainly the adult congenital centres or the surgical centres with cardiothoracic anaesthetists have always, I found, been happy to advise non-specialist anaesthetists with different anaesthetic techniques if they feel uncomfortable. If the patient appears hemodynamically stable, we have done inter-hospital transfers and we have done the cardioversions in the tertiary centres. It really should be done in expert hands, but not at the compromise of a patient that's deteriorating in front of you. It's all about the clinical assessment. But if you assess them early and keep them nil by mouth, and speak with your tertiary centre, specialist centre, they'll often advise on where, how, and who should be contacted to help you in that situation. I think if in doubt, phone a friend, we're all happy to be contacted. I think that's really good advice, isn't it? But we now know how to recognise these patients. And these are not patients to sit in a queue in a corridor waiting for majors, are they? They could go downhill very fast. They need immediate action, even if it's just a slightly increased atrial rate that's causing them to be compromised. Absolutely. And of course, you know, these are younger uh, demographic patients just by the fact of the uh, surgery that that the patients we've got at the moment, the biggest cohort are in their mid 30s. So they look like young patients who if you saw a young patient in an atrial arrhythmia, you'd think they could tolerate it. That is absolutely not the case in a univentricular circulation. They will come on well very quickly. So that's the Fontan patient who comes in with an arrhythmia. 
do some of these patients end up getting pacing in some way or form so that they can almost be treating themselves or that their their pacing system is taken over? Will we see patients like that? Pacing is a huge area in adult congenital heart disease that is rapidly progressing with different pacing techniques. So by convention, if you think about it, we're always used to pacing the subpulmonary ventricle through transvenous systems. If you remember, we've got two venous systems, head and neck, and the um, abdominal and lower limbs going straight back into the pulmonary arteries. So if you attempt, which please never do, but if anyone attempted to put in a temporary pacing wire into the venous systems through the neck or through the groin, you will end up in the pulmonary arteries, which is not a place we want a temporary pacing wire. So what our surgeons had done which most centres had done, was we used epicardial pacing systems. So many of these patients historically, certainly around our area in Southampton in the UK, we have epicardial pacing leads stitched on to the surface of the heart, the epicardium, with an abdominal pacing box that sits underneath the rectus sheath. So your chest x-ray will show you there's a pacing box there, but also be aware that you might be able to feel it on an abdominal examination. So we, yes, we could detect arrhythmias through it. We could also help to pace through it as well. That becomes rather specialised and relies on you having a 24-7 cover of pacing technicians, which again, you may not have. So I think to not deviate from the norm, ABCs and prepare for electrical DC cardioversion in a univentricular circulation would be the safest option for all concerned. Okay, so even in the patient with a pacemaker, they still may need to go down the line that we just talked about in the patients who don't. And we can't rely on that pacing system to sort them out if they're in extremis. Absolutely. There was another thing you mentioned in the teaching session, which I was fascinated by, was this idea of hemoptysis and why patients with the Fontan can get hemoptysis different to normal causes, if you like. If we see a young person with hemoptysis and a bit of a fever, we tend to think, oh, they've got an infection or perhaps, but that's not always the case here. They may have other special different stuff going on. If we think back to the anatomy that I described and where we've got in essence, two tubes attached to the pulmonary arteries, we want it to be a low pressure circulation. But over time, this becomes venous hypertension. So you get an increase in pressures within this. In absolute lay terms, I would describe it to a patient that their main fontan supplying their lungs is like a motorway. When that motorway becomes congested over time, A and B roads open up, but they become extremely congested. And that's what happens. These patients have the capability of opening up collateral vessels that will link to arterial and, and arterial venous systems. So it can cause them to desaturate, but more worryingly, it can link with some of the bronchial arterial tree. And we can see huge hemoptysis through collateral formation, which is another emergency within this group. So hemoptysis is something to be extremely wary of in the Fontan circulation. And again, back to your normal ED a, B, C. If the patient presents shocked by the parameters that you're so used to using with blood pressure and heart rate, if they look unwell with mass hemoptysis, treat them as such. You can fluid resuscitate them, blood, but then again, it's picking up the phone to your specialist centre, your anaesthetists. And for us, we'd be looking at the interventional radiology to coil these collateral vessels to reduce that high pressure bleed. Again, the take home point, trying to make it as straightforward for us as we can can is that any hemoptysis in a patient with a fontan circulation is at high risk of then having a massive hemoptysis which will be life-threatening so even the smallest amount of blood that they cough up 
you take that seriously. You do not let them go home and they need further investigation. Absolutely. At the minimum, you're bleeding investigations. As you say, you've large bore cannula, all your bloods, cross match, chest x-ray. And then I have to say that the minimum for me would be a CT chest with contrast to have a look. Okay, so I think that covers all the bits I remember you talking about to do with Fontan. The idea that this is a procedure, that there's multiple different ways in which people can end up having one. It's all about a low pressure state on the what we would call the right side of the heart. But in your terms, we talk about that sort of passive side on on the pulmonary side. We've got the single systemic ventricle that's supplying the rest of the circulation that we're so dependent on. And so any problem with that is going to cause a, an issue. Just the final thing, Sam, do these patients normally have normal saturations or can these be the patients who come in with sats of 85? It's a brilliant question. And do you know the answer is both. If they have a tube without a hole in it that we call fenestrated. So if they're non-fenestrated and that tube is intact, bringing all the venous return back to the pulmonary arteries, we would anticipate all being well, they have normal oxygen saturations. If there is a hole in that tube, and the reason that we fenestrate them to allow essentially a pressure pop-off valve, so if they get too much venous hypertension, and we've spoken about the risk of these collaterals, and also there's risk of back pressure into the liver, and we've seen associated liver cirrhosis in those that haven't had fenestrations, these patients will have lower oxygen saturations and will be cyanosed. For a patient, it's a trade-off. You can be pink, and you can fit in with your peers looking pink and not have the complications of having the cyanosis um, and all the complications that come with that. But it runs the risk of venous hypertension and liver cirrhosis. Um, you can be blue and have a pop-off valve and have saturations 85 and less. But then you trade having the secondary erythrocytosis, so running uh, hemoglobins between 180 to 230 grams per litre as your normal value and all the complications that come with that. And of course, there's always, which we're going to talk about, I'm sure, the risk of anything in your venous circulation making it into your systemic circulation if you're cyanose through a shunt. So Sam, it turns out that this episode is already got so much information in it. I think what we should do is Round up talking about Fontans now and then come back with another episode to talk about some of the other conditions that are so important in the emergency department. For everybody who's listening, they can take that on board now. Fontan is this circulation. ABCs are important. We've talked about some extra bits, haven't we, with arrhythmias and how vital it is that you manage those and the way that we can. We've talked about cyanosis and non-cyanosis in these patients and generally expert patients and contact your local centre. They will be available 24-7. Sam, I think that's brilliant. Let's hold there, pause, and then people can come back for the next episode to listen to more about adult congenital heart disease, Eisenmengers, transposition of the great arteries, coarctation, and much more. And we'll see you in the next episode. (music) 